Well, I hope you have your Bibles open to Genesis 40 and 41. For the sake of time, we're going to jump right in without the typical introduction. Um, just draw your attention to the outline that's in its normal place. We're going to look first at the man who was forgotten, and then we're going to look at the God who never forgets, and then we will look at a few takeaways from the story. Children, you'll find your words in their normal place as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you give us ears to hear and prepare our hearts and minds to receive your word. Grant me the grace that I need and fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you and your people tonight, and I pray that you would attend to me as I do this work that you've called me to do. Um, And I pray these things for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen. Let's begin first with uh, the man who was forgotten. We left off last week with Joseph in prison, Um, but at the same time, he was experiencing the special favor of the Lord who was with him. And at some point during the imprisonment, two of uh, Pharaoh's prominent servants, uh, both his cupbearer and the baker, had committed crimes of some kind. We don't know what they were, but those crimes had caused them to be worthy of being numbered among the prisoners in Joseph's charge. The language suggests that they weren't thrown in prison simply because Pharaoh was arbitrarily angry with them. It suggests that they had done something objectively wrong. And that's very, very important because, remember, Joseph was falsely accused He was wrongly and unjustly imprisoned, and so now in his midst, or he is now in the midst of two actual criminals, and their crimes, Moses described as crimes against the Lord, the King, so of course their their imprisonment was justified, and I want you to file that away for later. Because that is definitely something we're going to come back to, and you can probably, uh, you probably already know why, but I'm going to leave it there anyway. Uh, Moses tells us in verses 3 to 5 that Potiphar um, put these two high-profile criminals in Joseph's charge, and we understand why, or we expect that based upon last week, and that he attended to and ministered to them over a period of time or for some time. And at some point, they have dreams or had dreams. And we have to know or understand that in that day, um, in Egypt, dreams and their interpretation were very, very important. Uh, So much so that uh, dream interpretation was an actual profession. And volumes had been accumulated or put together or amassed that were to aid these professionals in their so-called art. Um, The problem was there weren't any professionals in prison at the time. And so this is what troubled the two as they had those dreams. They were so troubled that they became visibly disturbed to the point that Joseph saw their, um, their anguish or their disturbance. And so he goes to them because he's in charge of them and he asks them what's wrong. And when they told him, he quickly steps in. He doesn't hesitate. He, he knew from his own experience right, that if the Lord 
was responsible for their two dreams, that the interpretations would be easy, just as his two dreams that were from the Lord had been easy to interpret. If they were from God, if the dreams were from God, God would in fact interpret what he had sent. So he told them to share the dreams with him, and they do so. Look at verse 8. The chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches, and as soon as it was it budded, it, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph wastes no time. He immediately interprets the dream. He said, this is, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. So it's good news. As he had hoped, the cupbearer would be released, he'd be forgiven, he'd be restored to his position and reconciled with Pharaoh. And this favorable interpretation elicits two responses, one from Joseph and one from the baker. First, Joseph makes a, Joseph makes a request. Because I've given you a favorable interpretation, will you go to Pharaoh and speak favorably for me? Especially because I've been treated so unfairly and so unjustly. And Second, the baker shared his dream, hoping to receive a favorable interpretation as well. Unfortunately for both, neither get what they hoped for. The baker shares his dream or shared his dream, and Joseph informed him that while the cupbearer was going to be restored or, or saved and restored to the master's home, he would be judged, found wanting, and condemned to die and would be hanged. And then Joseph was left to endure the unfair suffering of his prison term for another two years. And then on top of that, while, while suffering, he was desiring and anticipating a reprieve that would never come. Because we read that the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. But I want you to notice something. Moses writes in such a way that informs us that despite the delay, despite the suffering, despite the disappointment that he would have been experiencing over that two years, that the Lord was still with him. Notice in verse 3, he says, Joseph was confined in prison, but then in verse 7, he says he was in custody in the master's home. So again, we're given that illusion of the Lord being with him. Though the cupbearer had, had let Joseph down and forgotten him, he had not been forgotten by a God who does not and never forgets. Which brings us to chapter 41. And Joseph is now 30 years old. And on what may have been his birthday, may not have been his birthday, Pharaoh had a couple of dreams. Look at verse 1. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, 
and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now, I think it's safe to say for most of us, and probably even for Pharaoh, that cows eating other cows was probably more of a nightmare than it was a dream. Just saying. Um, and it would explain why, why, he was, why his spirit was troubled. And, and so he called his professional dream interpreters. But unfortunately, they can't help. They, they can't answer his question. But, but all wasn't lost because this whole scenario triggers the memory of the cupbearer. And he shared the story from two years earlier of when he and the baker had their dreams but their dreams, while they were interpreted, they weren't interpreted by professionals. There were no professionals in prison. They were interpreted by a Hebrew slave who was in prison with them and who had ministered to them. And everything had come to pass just, he made sure to tell him, everything had come to pass just as the Hebrews said it would. So Pharaoh does what you would expect, and he immediately goes and, and seeks Joseph and brought him out of the pit. And after he's taken a bath, and after he's shaved and put on clean clothes, he appears before Pharaoh. He came in before Pharaoh, and when he arrived, Pharaoh filled him in on everything that had been going on, told him about the, dream, the couple of dreams that he had, and no one could help. And, but he had heard the cupbearer's story, and having heard the cupbearer's story, he figured, hey, you know, the hope was, having done it before, that Joseph, you could do it again, and that you could interpret my dreams. And Joseph is is in a position where he's got a decision to make at this point. He could have said something like, well, I'll try. Or he could have said, I can surely do it. But instead, he chose to bear witness to his God and his hope in him. And we need to take a minute to dig a little deeper to what's going on here and why this is so significant. Because Pharaoh was considered a god. And his magicians were considered professionals, and yet they're in a position where they're helpless. There was nothing that they were going to be able to do in and of themselves. Their power was extremely limited. But their impotence would be the context for the display of God's omnipotence. He would put his omnipotence on display, and, and Joseph's audacity would put his own confidence and trust in his God on full display as well. Look at verse 16. He says this, it is not in me. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So rather than exalt himself... He chose to testify about his God and his trust and obedience in his God. 
And in so doing, he implicitly attacks Pharaoh's vanity and Egypt's idolatry. But Pharaoh's Pharaoh's disturbed to the point, he, he misses that. And he simply waits. He doesn't, he doesn't hate or hesitate to begin sharing the dream with Joseph. And having heard the dreams, Joseph responded immediately. But before he gave the interpretation, he provides context. He said both dreams pointed to the same reality. His sovereign God had revealed to Pharaoh what he was about to do. In other words, God shared with Pharaoh that he, not Pharaoh, was in charge. God had expressed to Pharaoh, revealed to Pharaoh, that that he would impose his will and do what he wished And Pharaoh would have to choose, because he would have to submit to the Lord, he would have to choose how he was going to respond. And then Joseph said this, the seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven good ears, uh, I'm sorry, the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And then he made sure that Pharaoh understood the dire situation that they were in. He said the fact that he had two dreams was a sign of assurance He said, the sign of assurance that what God had said was going to happen was in fact going to happen and it was going to happen soon. But Joseph's boldness didn't stop there. He then then gives Pharaoh unsolicited advice. He said, now, therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal, Moses says, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all the servants. Now, I don't think, some people think, but I don't think that Joseph was referring to himself. I don't think uh, he was looking for position. I don't think he was looking for power. I don't think he was looking for any prestige. I just think he wanted to go home. I think Joseph 
wanted to go home. He was simply giving Pharaoh godly counsel. He was, he was seeking the welfare of Pharaoh in Egypt and hoped that it would lead to his freedom. And Pharaoh didn't hesitate to act, to take his advice and to act on the advice. It was obvious to him that Joseph was more wise and, and more discerning than any of his servants because he had a special relationship with God and he had been given a special gift from God that even his polytheism couldn't deny. And he chose Joseph to be the man. And as a result, Joseph has once again, for the third time, found favor with the head of the household. But this time, the head of the house was also the head of the nation. And in a matter of moments, Joseph was lifted up out of his humiliation. And he was exalted to the place of preeminence at the right hand of Pharaoh, the right hand of the king. He was given power and authority and dominion over the entire kingdom. When all was said and done, there was, there was only one greater than Joseph in Egypt, and that was Pharaoh. The coat of his father that marked him as the favored son paled in comparison to the jewelry that he received, the, the royal ring and the necklace and, and, the, clo and, and the, um, the, the clothes that he had, had um, that marked him as the ruler of the land of Egypt. You have to remember where Joseph was. The same man, he who had been bound in chains and forced to walk alongside camels in a slave trading caravan was now riding in a chariot as second in command. He who had been stripped of his freedom was now in a position which no one could do anything without his approval. The fulfillment of his own dreams started to take shape as the people of Egypt were bowing before him. And to make sure this, this assimilation was complete, Pharaoh gives him an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife from a very prominent uh, Egyptian family of a priest. And he immediately went to work putting his plan in motion. The next seven years were plentiful, just as God had ordained and just as God had said. The seven years after that were of famine just as God had ordained, and just as He had said. And when the people came to Pharaoh in need, He told them, go to Joseph, what He says to you, do. The God who never forgets had not forgotten Joseph. Now I want us to consider three things. As we, three things to take away from the story. And the first is, I want us to consider the sovereignty of God. Every facet of these two chapters and, and every facet of Joseph's story has the fingerprints of God all over it. God was in the midst of each 
in every circumstance, working providentially for His glory and for the good of Joseph and for the good of the people of God. He was working on an individual level in Joseph's life, but he was working on a corporate level in the life of his people. He was molding and making Joseph in, into the man that he desired him to be and wanted him to be and really needed him to be for his larger role in redemptive history. Because within redemptive history, God's people would need to be in Egypt in order for Moses to lead them out of Egypt 400 years later in the Exodus. And we're going to see that plan continue to unfold in the weeks ahead. In the end, these, these chapters, Joseph's story, these chapters, and really this, the, book of, the entire book of Genesis has been reminding us over and over and over again in the words of Richard Phillips that all things, low and high, everywhere and at all times, are subject to God's will. There's nothing he cannot do. There is no one he cannot use. There is nothing he cannot overcome, and there's no one he cannot change. He is sovereign over the hearts and plans of men, even kings, and he is sovereign over world affairs. He cannot be overruled because there is no one to whom he submits. He cannot be thwarted, he cannot be fooled, he cannot be manipulated, he cannot err, he cannot do anything wrong. He does not need our help, he doesn't need our advice. We don't have the right to judge him at all when things don't go our way or when we don't understand what he's doing. Instead, we should trust him. And the mercy and grace that He lavishes upon us that we need, which is sufficient in those times that we experience the suffering and unfairness and the sorrow and the injustice and the pain of day to day. And we should take comfort that He is not only able to work all things together for our good, but that He is working all things together for our good. Secondly, I want us to consider the faith of Joseph. It would have been easy for Joseph to lose his way or to give up and not remain steadfast over the course of his young life. Right? He's been rejected by his family. He's been falsely accused. He's been unjustly imprisoned. He's been forgotten and let down by a friend. And he's had to endure a prolonged period of waiting and disappointment. And then he goes immediately from rags to riches. He was immediately thrust into a position of power and prestige and prominence. He was no longer in a position of dependence, but he was now self-sufficient. And to make matters worse, everything, he's been set up to lose his identity as a child of promise. 
He was living and working in Egypt. He'd been given an Egyptian name. He's wearing Egyptian clothes. He's probably speaking Egyptian at this point. He married an Egyptian woman from a very prominent Egyptian family. It should have been only a matter of time before he continued and grew dependent upon and began worshiping Egyptian gods as well. But look at verse 50. I know some of you were thinking I skipped it, but I didn't. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. There are two things we need to notice here. The first is this. The meanings of the names let us know that by the grace of God, Joseph was able to live in the present and toward the future because he wasn't chained to and and was able to move on from his past. He was able to move beyond the pain, beyond the betrayal, beyond the sin that had been perpetrated against him, and he was able to look ahead, and he was usable and productive. And in the words of James Boyce, if we are living in the past, whether that is the past of unconfessed sin, hurts, suffering, or even old blessings, we will never be completely fruitful in the present. We must let the past be the past, forgetting it, and go on with God. And secondly, the names themselves are Hebrew. And being Hebrew, it lets us know that he had not lost his identity because he had not forgotten the God who had not forgotten him. He continued to be faithful. He continued to serve the Lord because the Lord had continued to be with him. He maintained his identity as Abraham's offspring and as a child of the covenant, even in Egypt. Brothers and sisters, may we, like Joseph, maintain our identity as Christians in the midst of the culture in which we live. May we continue to live in the world, not loving the world or identifying with it. And then finally, I want us to consider our hope in Christ. Our hope in Christ. I said last week that we, or or, I'm sorry, that Joseph points us to Christ. Uh, Joseph was I'm going to kind of continue where I left off last week. Joseph was involuntarily removed from his home and thrown in a pit. Jesus voluntarily left his rightful place in heaven to climb into the pit of death on the cross to take the full weight of God's wrath upon himself. Like Joseph, Jesus was falsely accused. He was unjustly condemned and he was hung between two criminals, one of whom was saved and was restored to the master's house, 
And the other was judged and found wanting and left to suffer the consequences of his sin. Joseph fulfilled his role um, of a pro- fulfilled the role of a prophet as he, by the power of the Spirit, revealed the will of God through the interpretation of the dreams. And we know Jesus fulfills the office of prophet in the words of our shorter catechism as he reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Joseph was lifted up out of his humiliation and exalted to a place of prominence at the right hand of of Pharaoh, and he was given that power and authority and dominion over all of the earthly kingdom of Egypt. Jesus was lifted up out of his humiliation, and he was exalted to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he was given power and authority and dominion over all of creation. Every knee in Egypt would bow to Joseph. Paul tells us that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And finally, Joseph asked the cupbearer to remember him, but was forsaken. Jesus was forsaken by his father in order that he would drink the cup of wrath for the sin of the one he said he would remember in paradise. And if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus, he's done the same for you. He took the cup of wrath for you. And you will receive the cup of blessing. He remembers you. He will never forget you. He will never forget you because when he looks at the scars in his hands and his feet, he's reminded of those for whom he died. He will never forget you because he knows the name of each and every person for whom he intercedes at the throne of grace continually, perpetually. If you're not a Christian, or if you are, if you're bruised, or broken by your own sin, or the sins of others, if you're weak and weary and heavy laden and are in need of rest, if you're in the midst of spiritual famine and are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, hear these words. Go to Jesus. What He says to you, do. And what does He say? I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to me 
or comes to the Father except through me. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he also says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives for your glory, for our good, and the sake of Christ and his church. Amen.